This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. This is Fresh Air. I'm David Cooley. Alan Arkin, the Oscar-winning actor who appeared in such films as Wait Until Dark, Little Miss Sunshine, and Argo, died last week at age 89. One of his most famous starring roles was in the 1970 Mike Nichols movie version of Joseph Heller's Catch-22. He played Yasserian, the World War II bombardier who wanted to stop flying dangerous bomber missions. He cornered the company doctor on the airstrip as planes took off loudly all around them and asked to be declared too crazy to fly. But the doctor, played by Jack Guilford, explained why that wasn't so easy. There's a catch. A catch. Sure, catch 22. Anyone who wants to get out of combat isn't really crazy, so I can't ground him. Okay, let me see if I got this straight. In order to be grounded, I've got to be crazy. And I must be crazy to keep flying. But if I ask to be grounded, that means I'm not crazy anymore and I have to keep flying. You've got it. That's catch 22. Alan Arkin played both comic and dramatic parts and came from a background that was equally versatile. Before he began acting on stage, screen, and TV, he was a member of the folk singing group The Terriers, who had a hit with the Banana Boat Song in 1956, the same year as Harry Belafonte. He was an early member of the Second City Comedy Troupe in Chicago and won a Tony Award in 1961 for starring in the comedy Enter Laughing. His movie debut was as one of the stars of The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming, and his later films included him playing Sigmund Freud in The 7% Solution and playing opposite Peter Falk in The In-Laws. On TV, he played a grieving husband in a recurring role on St. Elsewhere, and at the end of his career was racking up Emmy nominations as a supporting actor in the Netflix comedy series The Kaminsky Method. He won his Academy Award for playing the foul-mouthed grandfather in the 2006 film Little Miss Sunshine. The family is crammed into a van for a road trip, and the grandfather, played by Arkin, starts a conversation with the grandson seated silently next to him, while Arkin's son, played by Greg Kinnear, drives and objects. Can I give you some advice? Well, I'm going to give it to you anyway. I don't want you making the same mistakes I made when I was young. Can we hear this? Dwayne, that's your name, right? Dwayne, this is the voice of experience talking. Are you listening? A lot of women, Dwayne. Hey. Not just one woman. Dad. A lot of women. That's enough, right? Are you getting any? Dad. You can tell me, Dwayne. Are you getting any? Come on, please. No? Jesus. You're what? 15? My God, man. Dad. You should be getting that young Dad. stuff. That young stuff hey. is the best stuff in the whole world. Hey, Dad, that's enough. Stop Will it. Will you kindly not interrupt me, Richard? See, right now, you're jailbait, they're jailbait. It's perfect. I mean, you hit 18. Man, you're talking about three to five. Hey, I will pull this truck over right now. Terry Gross interviewed Alan Arkin in 1989. He told her why he likes to work in different media. I keep thinking that when I change uh, media, something new and wonderful is going to happen, and I'm going to break through the limits of my own personality, and it never seems to happen. I look at my writing, and I see the same kind of things I like about my acting and the same kind of things I dislike about my acting and I feel like my direction has the same uh, assets and liabilities as everything else I do. Has that been um, uh, one of the difficult things about performing learning to figure out and then to accept what your limitations are? Yeah, I never realized that until recently, but I think that, well, for me, one of the goals is to be something more than more than what I am, and no matter how far afield I think I'm going, in retrospect, I look back and all I see is me. Even no matter how many hats I change, no matter how many uh, limps I affect or speech patterns I, I change, I almost invariably only see me. That, actually, that hasn't. There've been a couple of times when I feel like I've, I've transcended my own identity, and those were those were really enormously exciting times for me. Mm-hmm. What's wrong with seeing yourself in a role, though? Um. 
that's not the idea of doing it. I think, uh, I think originally that is people. I guess people want to perform initially because they want to be seen. Hey, look at me! Look what I'm doing. But I, but then once in a while you you reach you reach something in, and it's not just performing. It's almost any field, uh, which is a kind of a, a, a epiphany where you're no longer there. And I achieved that for the first time when I was about 19 or 20. Uh, uh, and when I was had been studying acting fervently, and I wasn't on stage for about twenty minutes, I disappeared. And the char- I, I was—it's as if I was watching myself play the character. And it was the most exhilarating thing I'd ever experienced up until that time. And for the next twenty years or so, I became a junkie to that experience. Athletes uh, have that experience. They have a term for it now. It's—it's it's called being in the zone. And once you've experienced that, uh, n- nothing else will satisfy you anymore. Do you think that the impulse to act comes in part from wanting to get out of yourself, transcend yourself? Oh, yeah, I think for a lot of people. I don't think they, they, uh, they phrase it that poetically initially. I think, it's, I think it a lot of times comes out of a kind of uh, self-loathing that a lot of people aren't really aware of at the time, wanting to be any... It certainly was in me, and I see it in the work of a lot of other people, too, a desire to be anybody else but who you are. Uh, it also can come out of a kind of a childish thing of, of imitating other people, wanting to be you know, seeing your father and imitating him, seeing other people around that look interesting, as if they have interesting attributes you want to adopt and affect. It's, I think, uh, I think that's another way of. Um, when you were growing up, was there anyone in your family or, or in your neighborhood who was theatrical in, in the way they lived their life? I don't mean that they were necessarily on the, on the stage, but they had the sense of the theater of life. Yeah, oh, very much so. There was a guy named Sam Kennedy who uh, was the husband of my mother's best friend, who was the most flamboyant character I'd ever met. He was right out of Sean O'Casey. And he wore uh, black turtleneck sweaters, woolen ones, without any underwear underneath, and jeans in days when nobody was doing things like that in the 40s and late 30s. And he was about 6'4 and had a mustache and was a merchant seaman and a sculptor and a guitarist and uh, drank like a fish. And uh, he was the most flamboyant person I think I'd ever met. And uh, You like that? Oh, yeah, yeah. But it was very organic. There was nothing artificial about it. It came right from the heart of him. And any really colorful speakers? Speakers? Mm-hmm. Well, him, uh, my father was always very good verbally, and my grandfather was... Uh, made speeches for the Masons, so hmm. he was very literate. I, I have a, a, a vivid memory of him reading a speech, tears streaming down his face, to uh, a plumber who was, the two of them were in the, the bathroom, and the plumber, all you could see was his feet sticking out from under the bathtub. He was paying absolutely no attention to my grandfather. <laughs> and there he was, <laughs> reading this passionate speech with tears streaming down his face. <laughs> So here you were with all of this interest in, in theater, and when you got, I think it was when you got out of college in around 1956, you were part of the, the pop folk group, the Terriers. Yeah. And they had um, uh, a hit that made it onto the charts, actually, of the Banana Boat song and what, Cindy O' Cindy? Yeah. Um, it, it seems, it almost seems like you were miscast in that group. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, yes. I felt so myself. I was. I, I ended up after about two years being uh, on stage at the Olympia Theater in Paris to a, an audience of about three thousand. We were singing our hearts out, and I looked down at myself, and there I was in black satin pants and a and a uh, sport shirt, open to my navel practically. <laughs> and I said, "Who am I? What am I doing here?" And I quit that night, and went back to what I wanted to do, which was uh, be connected with film and theater. How did you get into the detour of folk music to begin with? Well, I had gotten out of college, and I had gotten married and had a small child at the age of 22, and I needed something to do to to just get us going. And there was this group that started, and I thought it would only take up my weekends periodically, and uh, we'd make a little spare change to just survive on it. And within three months, we had an enormous hit on our hands, and so we traveled around the world with that for about two years, and uh, it just seemed to me that it was the logical thing to do at the time. And I also thought, in my naive fashion, that would be an entree into film and theater, which it wasn't. Well, I think one of your entrees into film and theater was uh, Chicago's Second City group. Yeah, it was my entree into everything. Mm -hmm. I feel like I got born there. Second City was an improvisational 
theater and, and comedy group. Were you surprised that you were good at improvisation? Very, yeah. I had no idea I had any uh, abilities in that area at all. In fact, it took me uh, months to, to be funny. I, I, I would work out with David Shepard in the group, and I wasn't funny. I, nothing I did was funny. And then finally, I hit upon one character that was funny. So I just played that character for a long time. No matter what I did as that character, people laughed. And so I said, well, I'll stick with that. What was the character? I don't remember. It was uh, one ethnic type or another. Um, I don't remember exactly who it was. But then I started adding to that character. I started uh, adding other characters to that character. And I ended up with a library of uh, characters that I played, that I f each of which I felt were very far from what I was what I was as a person, only to find out ten years later and looking back that they were all exactly like me, every one of them. Who were some of the characters? Well, I had a Puerto Rican kid, a sensitive Puerto Rican kid who, uh, who, who considered himself uh, unable to do anything in society, uh, played guitar. I had an ancient uh, Jewish pretzel vendor who was modeled after my grandfather. I had an Italian laborer. I had a, uh, a Chinese chef. Uh, that was the first four, I think. Uh, but I, use, I tried to use them in everything. If I tried to squeeze them in every conceivable kind of place because they were the only things I felt comfortable with for a long time. So at what point were you ready to like, leave those characters aside and play comedy yourself? Well, it was a long time. Um, uh, it, it really started when Mike Nichols cast me as Yossarian in Catch-22, and I kept looking at the character and looking at it, and I said, well, I, I finally asked him, who do I play him like? Who, who, is he, who should I model him after? He said, he's you. Mike said, he's you. And I thought to myself, what, what does he mean, me? There isn't any me. There's going to be a blank on the screen if I just do me. There won't, nobody will show up. And uh, he finally convinced me that I just had to be myself in that situation and I, I had great trepidation about it. I, I didn't know how to do that. But I tried it and uh, I went to the dailies uh, for a week or two with, with a lot of anxiety thinking that there was going to be a blank hole in the screen where I was and to my surprise and, and finally I had to admit delight there was somebody there and I said, hey, there is a me. And I guess in... in in uh, a lot of, in most ways, that was a real transition for me. And seeing that I that I had an existence, that I did have some weight as myself, and that I could afford to let go of those a lot of the places that, were, that I was hiding under. Uh, let's talk a, a little bit about your first feature film, The Russians Are Coming. Earlier, you said that when you looked back on this r role, you didn't feel like you saw you s yourself; you saw the character. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to play a short clip from the movie, and this is uh, this is a scene from early on after. Uh, the, the Russians have landed in New England, and you've knocked on the door of a, of a family. Uh, Carl Reiner's the husband, Eva Marie Saint is, is the wife, and uh, you're taking them at gunpoint into their home and hoping that th they'll help you find a boat. All to give and come, please. Yes. I repeat, no harm is coming. All that, please, being seated. It's all right, honey, just take it easy now, Pete Boyd. Don't be scared, there's no need to be scared. I'm not scared. Good. Good boy. Now. To answer some few questions very quickly, please, so that there is no necessity whatsoever. Whatsoever, whatsoever. So that there is no necessity whatsoever why everybody in such a nice American family should get shot to little pieces. You understand? Yes. Good. Now, what else people are in this house? So that's your first feature role. Right. Uh, what stage were you in acting then? How did you prepare for that role? What, how did I prepare? Um, it was mostly in learning how to speak Russian and thinking a lot about what I wanted to do. I didn't do any research because I didn't know how I could do any research. I wanted this, my, I, I wanted to play some, I wanted to be very comfortable. It was important to be, be comfortable. It was my first feature and I knew I was going to be panic stricken because uh, it's something I'd wanted to do for 25 years and uh, it was a big, it was just too big a hunk of my life uh, to relax about. So you actually studied Russian for the part? Yeah, for months. I studied r Russian with an old woman in New York. Uh, nobody had, had told me uh, what to do or how to do it. I was left to my own devices, so I worked for months with this woman trying to get the sound. And I was pretty good at, at languages, but there were sounds in Russian I could not hear. And then finally, after several months, I began to hear the sounds, and I got the lines down in Russian. I went on the set, and I said my first line in rehearsals proudly, 
And, and there were a lot of real Russians on the set. Nobody understood a word I was saying. <laughs> and it turned out I was speaking a Russian that no one had spoken for about 50 years. It was totally archaic and I had to, on the set, start over again from the very beginning, which was very unnerving. Alan Arkin, let's jump ahead to 1985, uh, to your role in the movie Joshua Then and Now. And you starred along with James Woods in this movie. You played uh, James Woods' father, a small-time Jewish gangster and bootlegger. And uh, I want to play an excerpt from a flashback scene in which you're in a gym with your young son and you're teaching him about the Ten Commandments. Okay. What do we got here? Quote, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Unquote. Yeah, you see, there was a lot of contenders in those days. Other gods, mainly no account idols, bums of the month, until our god, Jehovah, came in and took the title outright and made a covenant with our people. Yeah, I, I know. Okay, where was I? Yeah, thou shalt not commit adultery. That's... Well, uh... Huh. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not steal? Yeah, right, well, you, you know, there's, uh... There's Ten Commandments. It's like an exam, right? I figure you get eight out of ten right. You're pretty much at the top of the class, aren't you? Was there anyone you knew in life that you could pattern this character on? Not a soul. No, nobody I knew. I loved that character. I just The minute I, I read the script, I knew exactly what I wanted to do with him. And, uh, and, and that was it. I told Ted Kotcheff, the director, who was wonderful to work with, I told him what I wanted to do, and he said, fine, go ahead, that sounds good, and, and that's what I did. I worked out a lot. I got myself in pretty good shape for it uh, in, in scenes they never ended up using. So, so I got into good shape for nothing. For nothing. <laughs> what a waste of time. Yeah, it was terrible. <laughs> um, I have read about you that in the late 60s or early 70s that you started yoga and also found someone who was something of a guru figure for you. Mm-hmm. Um, what brought about that change? What brought about the change was seven years of analysis in which I worked very hard and uh, which I feel like I really needed. I was very unhappy. And I came to a point where analysis, where I was coming to the end of my analysis by both my doctor's recognition and my own and uh, feeling like I'd passed the course and ha- having him say uh, akin to, I never promised you a rose garden. And I found myself getting furious at that idea. Because uh, I saw that there were people that had rose gardens, and I wanted one. And uh, if analysis wasn't going to do it for me, particularly in some, in, since I had worked very, very hard at it and had accomplished a lot of what my doctor felt was to be accomplished from it, I, I felt like I had to look elsewhere. And I started working with somebody who turned out, who I knew immediately was the best person I had ever met. Uh, he was the wisest and kindest person I'd ever met. And initially, I didn't know he was a yogi. Uh, he was my stand-in on a film, on Poppy. And, uh, and he was playing an extra? Or so? he, he was playing he a stand-in. He was my, my stand-in, which is not a terribly exalted job, mm-hmm. as everybody knows. And after about three and a half weeks, I could sense very clearly that he was the center of the entire film. It's not as if he was loud or pushy or, uh, or taking over anything, but he just radiated something that people gravitated towards. And it, it, it annoyed me. So I, I said, here I am, I have everything, I'm the star, I got ten times as much money as he's got, I got more attention, and he's, he's uh, the center of this thing. It's, it's not right. So I tried to find out who and what he was, and he finally revealed the fact that he was a... Uh, Guru is, has got a terrib- terribly convoluted connotations this day. We've, we've twisted around and uh, almost destroyed the, the meaning of that word. Uh, everybody who knows something is now called a guru, which is not what the word means by any stretch of the imagination. It means slayer of darkness, which is ultimately what analysis tries to do and doesn't do. And it knocks off a piece of it, but it doesn't get the whole thing. And a great spiritual teacher knocks off your darkness, which is the thing that is uh, keeping you from functioning fully and wholly and completely and lovingly. Can I relate this back to uh, acting and ask you if it's changed the way you act or changed how much you act or the kinds of roles you take? Yeah, uh, to a degree. It depends on how much money I've got in the bank, in part. I mean, sure, I, yeah. I, I, is, uh, If I... 
if I'm feeling pretty flush, then I feel more comfortable in turning down things that, that I don't want to do. But if, uh, if uh, I'm a behind a payment on the house, then I got to be a little bit more, uh, a little bit more uh, uh, generous in my assessment of something. But yeah, I don't want to play horrible people anymore. I don't want to. I, it's no fun. It, what, there was a time when I had so little sense of myself that getting out of my skin and being anybody else was was a sigh of relief. But I kind of like myself now a lot of the times, and uh, I, I, I don't see any real necessity or value in playing people that I find abhorrent anymore. That's number one. And number two, I like to think if I possibly uh, can be in situations like it, I want my work to be connected with things that somehow serve people in some way. Well, Ellen Arkin, I thank you so much. For thank you. You're, you're wonderful to talk to. Oh, thanks. I really enjoyed this very much. You're very easy. Alan Arkin speaking to Terry Gross in 1989. He died last week at age 89. After a break, we listen back to an archive interview with Ringo Starr, who turns 83 years old today. And movie critic Justin Chang reviews the new comedy film Joyride. I'm David Cooley. And this is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, A People's History, from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, executive producer of Insecure, Black Twitter, A People's History, tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Ringo Starr, as the drummer for the Beatles, released his first recordings with that group more than 60 years ago. Yet there's still at least one more new recording to come, featuring contributions from demo tapes or existing studio recordings by all four Beatles. Ringo is still releasing records as a solo artist and recently wrapped up his spring concert tour with Ringo Starr and his all-star band. The man who was born as Richard Starkey in Liverpool in 1940 turns 83 years old today. He plans to be in Beverly Hills celebrating his birthday the way he has for the past 15 years, asking fans to say, think, or post peace and love at precisely noon in their respective time zones. So in honor of his birthday, and because the Beatles are still dipping into their recorded archives, we thought we'd do the same. Here's a conversation between Ringo Starr and Terry Gross, recorded in 1995, the year of the ABC documentary miniseries, The Beatles Anthology. Can we talk a little bit about life before the Beatles? For sure, you? sure. Well, you grew up in Liver Liverpool. What was your neighborhood like? Well, I was born at a very early age. Yeah, <laughs> all right. Uh, my neighborhood was a uh, real working class. Um, I remember being conscious from a very early age that I wanted to get out of there because it was dark. Dark uh, from... It was just dark. It was just a dark neighborhood, you know. It was like they needed more streetlights at night. Um, but, of course, it was my neighborhood as a child, and I have, you know, wonderful memories of it. And it, the, the thrilling thing is that, you know... I, my memory of it, because I'd left it for years, was like, you know, this childhood memory that I had all these big avenues that we used to walk down. And then I went back and there's all these really narrow streets. <laughs> <laughs> the memory plays games. But it was a it was a loving neighborhood. I mean, the school was three minutes walk away. So, you know, it was a real neighborhood. Um, there was a pub on nearly every corner, which I got to a little later. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um you know, and that, there was a park I used to walk to. I mean, one of my ambitions, which my mother used to tell me often, was to, I wanted to be a tramp. And so I, we used to walk everywhere. One of the reasons was, of course, because we couldn't afford to take a car or take a limo in those days. 
or a bus even. So I used to walk a lot. So I used to love that. And there was parks around us. So it was, it was a very poor neighborhood, but childhood memories uh, make it quite romantic. I know your father left the family, I think, when you were three. Yeah, he'd had enough. <laughs> <laughs> so, so did, did um, your mother have a way of making money? Yeah, she worked any job she could find. You know, I mean, I come from a working-class family, but they call it lower working-class when you've only got one parent. Mm -hmm, <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, But my mother, God bless her, she uh, did anything from scrubbing steps to working in a fruit shop to working in pubs, um, anything she could to support us because he forgot that part of the bargain. Right. Mm. Now, I know when you were young, you had two long hospital stays. Mm -hmm. When you were six, your appendix burst, and yeah. you ended up getting an internal infection. Uh, peritonitis, mm -hmm. it's called, yeah. So and uh, that was pretty dangerous. Uh, it's still dangerous today, but in 1947, it was very dangerous. So you were in the hospital for about a year. I right? was in a mm -hmm. year because six months in, I was getting rather well, and I got excited, and I fell out the bed. <laughs> oh, no. And, and ripped open all these stitches in my stomach, so they had to dive in again and sew me up. Oh, gosh. So we're lucky to be here, Terry. Yeah. Well, then you got sick again when you were 13. I know. Well, Tuberculosis, was it? Yeah, but that was from the area I lived in. Uh, Industrial it, stuff? It, yeah. Where I lived, like, not every other home, but it was like, you know... Six or seven cases in every street where people were just in, in the living room dying of TB because they didn't have a cure, of course. Mm -hmm. And uh, and again, God, you know, shone his light on me in 1953 or 54 when they discovered streptomycin, uh, and that's what saved me. So they shipped me off to a greenhouse in the country. A greenhouse, is it like well, a sanitarium? Yeah, just a huge greenhouse. Where instead of flowers, they put all his kids in there. And uh, and let us breathe some decent air for a change, and gave us streptomycin. And a year later, I I came out of there. Did you, when you were a kid, think that you were going to die die as a child? Uh, I don't know if that really crossed my mind about I'm going to die. I really knew I was ill, and the doctors felt I was going to die three times, but we proved them wrong. Uh, so I was pretty ill, but I don't think I was thinking, oh, I'm going to die. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't think that came into my mind. So um, how did you keep busy while you, while you were sick? Had music entered your life yet? Were you well, that's listening where to a lot of it? It's, that's where it entered my life was because to keep us busy, besides letting us knit, they used to let us knit uh, dishcloths. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> it was really exciting. <laughs> yeah. And then um, so the, some... Some uh, teacher would come in with musical instruments, being drums, tambourines, uh, maracas, triangles, all percussive stuff. And she'd put this big screen, I'm trying to uh, let you visually, visualize it out there, Radio Land, big, uh, big white paper with red notes for the drums, and yellow <laughs> notes for the tambourines, and green notes for the triangles. And so she would point to these different colored uh, symbols, and we would either hit whatever instrument we had. Well, uh, I had a drum the first, the first time, the first session, and, uh, and I really loved it. And so they came back like a couple of weeks later and they tried to give me another instrument, but I only wanted the drum, and that's where I really fell in love with drums. Was that supposed to be physical therapy for you also, since it's such a physical instrument? Well, we, weren't, we couldn't get out of bed too often. You know, it was a big deal after six months in the hospital when they said, you can get out of bed now and sit on a chair. <laughs> so that was the big move. But uh, So it was just to keep us entertained. They never really came in giving us maths and geography or things like that. They gave us knitting and making things, you know, paper mache stuff and things like that. So what was it like for you after you were sick to, or while you were sick even, to be playing an instrument that's so physically taxing? Well, I didn't have an instrument for years later. I made my first kit when I came out of hospital, out of uh, biscuit tins and firewood. And then when I was uh, about 16, I got a bass drum. That's all I had was a big bass drum. And then when I was 18, I got my first kit. So I'd strengthened up by then. And how old were you when you were actually playing in a band? One month later. After you got the kit? Yeah, because <laughs> I was really lucky because... if. In those days, if you had the instrument, you were in the band. <laughs> Ringo Starr speaking to Terry Gross in 1995. More after a break. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, one of the largest recipients of NIH funding. 
Dana-Farber scientists played a substantial role in developing more than half the cancer drugs approved by the FDA in the last five years, data through 2022. They've made one advanced cancer discovery after another for over 75 years. Dana-Farber Cancer Institute is changing lives everywhere. More at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Support for NPR and the following message come from Jarl and Pamela Moan, thanking the people who make public radio great every day and also those who listen. This is my voice. I can tell you a lot about me, and I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on Black experiences. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. So how did the Beatles ask you to join the band after they uh, asked Pete Best to leave it? Well, they didn't do it that way, you see. Pete Best was still in the band, and I was with Rory. Mm-hmm. And one day, Pete couldn't make the session, so they asked me to play. And we'd got to know each other in Germany because we were the two bands playing there, the Beatles and Rory Storm. So, you know, we really became friends there. Then we came back to Liverpool, and uh, Pete couldn't make it one day, and uh, Brian Epstein came and said, would you play the lunchtime session? And I said, sure. And that was it. And then we went for a drink, and that was the end of the story. And then a couple of weeks later, he asked me again to play a couple of sessions, uh, a couple of gigs. And I said, sure, you know, because I just happened to have the time. And then uh, I went away to play with Rory to a... It's a holiday camp in England, Butlin's Holiday Camp, where we you go for three months, you play the summer there in the the rock and calypso hall <laughs> and <laughs> and we were the rock band and um brian called me on the phone and he said uh you know would you like to join the beatles well i said sure i'd love to join the beatles and uh, i said when and he said today and i said well i can't join today that was a wednesday uh, in 1962 and and i said i can't play today because you know the band would be out of a job you'd have to wait till uh Saturday because by then we could get another drummer and uh, that's what happened and you know everybody knows the story from then on well an interesting part of the story is that you showed up for the first um, recording session oh yeah of the Beatles and um, the producer George Martin yeah had another drummer all picked out because I guess he didn't know that you you had been chosen to be in the band no he didn't know well he he listened to the band with Pete Best and didn't think uh, Pete was going to be on the session. And uh, so he didn't know about me at all. <laughs> and so he'd got this drummer, Andy White, ready, a, you know, a professional drummer, a session drummer. <laughs> uh, I, you know, and I came down and I was just mortified. And he said, oh, we've got this real drummer here. <laughs> I thought, what am I? And he didn't want to take a chance because in those days, it wasn't like you could go in the studio and just spend your time there. You know, the session was three hours. You were in and out, and that was it. So uh, Andy played on the on the single, and of course, then we re-recorded it, and I played on the album. And I sort of defy anyone to tell the difference. Um, and that was it. But George Martin has apologized over and over again because I've made him uh, for doing this to me. Well, what did you think the Beatles' chances were of really making it? What was your assessment of the band when you joined it? I joined the band because they were the best band I'd heard, and that was how I played. I I moved my career uh, through Liverpool, of course, to, you know, the, if I could get into a better band, I would, and uh, and that's how I did it. You know, the, I, my aim was to play with good players, and that's what I did. I mean, it, the aim was not really to, you know, be big and famous. It was just to play with really good people. Did you change your sound when you joined the Beatles? No, no. That's why they, uh, you know, they wanted me to play because of the way I could play. So when you joined the band, did you have to do, you know, the Beatles haircut and the suit jacket? Well, and... that's the famous line, you know, John came on the phone saying, welcome to the band, but you'll have to 
get your hair cut and get rid of your beard, <laughs> and uh, which I did. I didn't have much of a beard then, but I did have my hair swept back, and uh, we had it cut so it fell forward. It was part of the image, and Brian Epstein was moving them into like this image thing too, making them wear suits and you know not drinking and smoking on stage. So it was all part of the deal. Now, now, in the Beatles, did you have to, like, figure out who you were going to be in terms of your, your public personality in the band? Because you know, everybody in the band seemed to get this, you know, public uh, persona. Yeah, I think mine just came in naturally uh, as Mr. Dopey. Uh, you know, it's sort of like the, the comic clown, you know. Uh, John had that edge. Paul was Mr. Lovable. Well, I was Mr. Lovable, but the, the young girls loved him. Uh, George was this this silent type, and uh, you know I was, hi, what's happening? Uh, and so that image, of course, uh, especially through Hard Days Night, is you know I've had to battle that since that day. Everybody thinks, oh, that's what he's like, and of course he's not like that at all. Can you give us a sense of what it was like early on when um, the Beatles' fame started getting like so extraordinary that you couldn't you couldn't go places without attracting crowds. I mean, well, you know, we were young boys and it was exciting where we, you know, we sort of conquered England. That was the first job, you know, just to get down to London and get in there was heavy enough. And then we'd do the continent. You know, we used to have this, oh, well, we've done Sweden, we've conquered Sweden, <laughs> we've done France now, we've done Italy, you know. And then, of course, we were invited to come to America. And at that time, we were really worried because we'd had two records out here or they were coming out. Nobody wanted them. And by chance, George came over for a holiday. He was the first one of us to come to America. And, of course, he was going into record shops saying, oh, have you got the Beatles? And they were saying, excuse me, never heard of them. So, you know, he came back saying, oh, they don't know us over there. And, of course, you know, the uh, the story goes when Capital decided to put some money behind us to promote us, and we, we got off the plane to do Ed Sullivan. We had a number one. I mean, you know, you can't, you can't plan things like that. This is just how it is. Well, the, the first Ed Sullivan performance is, is one of the watershed moments in rock and roll history. Mm-hmm. What, history. Were you, what are some of your memories of... Of Ed Sullivan? Of that show, Well, yeah. Ed, you see, I thought, we come to America, and it was fabulous, and there was millions of people at the airport, and there were lying in the streets, and it was, yeah, 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 all over the place. And just my mind, I have of Ed to this day, and I don't know if it's actually true, but my... Just my impression was Ed Sullivan, you know, I'm waiting for Ed to say, you know, they are, they're all the way from England, and it's great, and they're going to be fabulous, and blah, 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 blah. And it's like Ed said, here they are, the Beatles. <laughs> just, just, well, you probably couldn't just comprehend like thrown, the whole... Yeah. thrown to the lions. Right. So, to this day, I've always thought, God, I mean, we could have done better than that, Ed. <laughs> well, you probably were unfamiliar with the whole Ed Sullivan phenomenon. I mean, the most low-key, square person. You know, we yeah. did not know what it meant. You know, this guy just booked us on a show. We'd go anywhere for a gig. So when um, when girls started screaming at your performances, did, mm. did you have did you have any idea what was going on? Like, why why uh, the screaming as opposed to anything else? It started in Liverpool. Mm-hmm. And uh, just... So you actually knew where it started? Um, I mean, I was yeah, it I was like, on like like wildfire all over the world. W- was it frustrating to perform in concerts where you couldn't hear what you were playing because the audience was screaming so loudly? Well, it got frustrating in the end. At the beginning, it was just fabulous. I mean, you know, if you can imagine, you're twenty two, twenty three, and you go on stage, and all those people are just screaming at you, loving you. I mean, um, you know, you were selling, making, and selling a lot of records and making good records. Um, you know, it was everything you dreamed of. Uh, and it just built up and built up. And, of course, around about 65, uh, you know, it started actually to get a little tiring because, you know, we we were starting to make really interesting records and we couldn't perform them. And it didn't matter what we did, people were screaming anyway, so no one was listening. And because of that, uh, we were becoming, you know, not the best musicians we would become because we could only play you know, the actual thing. I mean, for me personally, I you know, it's very hard to to do this on radio, but I could only do the downbeat, you know, mm, check, mm, check, mm, check, mm, check. Uh, I couldn't do any fills or anything because they would just disappear into the, you know, into the cosmos. So you found yourself, you know, you're just sitting there playing the track, really. Do you have a favorite phase of the Beatles' recording years? Uh, I think... Well, you see, the very first 
uh, record, you know, making the first records was just was just a thrill. I mean, it was absolutely thrilling, and uh, and listening to it on the radio, you know, we would stop the car when we'd be going to a gig somewhere, and you'd know, you know, because they didn't play them every ten minutes. Oh, it's seven forty-five on Wednesday. They're going to play your record, and so wherever we were going, we'd stop the car. We're usually in a car. And listen to it. And the other thing we did, if if it moved up the charts, we would always have a celebratory dinner. So if you look at Beatle photos and Beatle footage, you'd see them getting fatter and fatter and fatter <laughs> as they were getting more popular, because now we could afford food, you know. But and then of course, from Rubber Soul on, uh, you know, the record started to really get exciting. Oh, you know. Uh, the sound, we were really getting into the sound, making sounds, making good sounds. The writing was getting better. Uh, you know, everything was picking up. It was really getting good. So, you know, it had a natural progression. So, you know, to say this period or that period, they're all different periods. I mean, I like the White Album. That's one of my favorites just because it, I felt after Sgt. Pepper, which was, which was brilliant, but it just doesn't happen to be my favorite. Uh, the White Album, we were getting back to being a band again. And, you know, that's what the Beatles were. We were a, a really cool band. Being a band as opposed to being uh, artfully produced in the studio? Is that sure, what you mean? even though we did it ourselves. So, you know, suddenly the so the strings and the brass were, were taking the center stage around the songs instead of the group. My guest is Ringo Starr. Um, it, it just, it's something else about the Beatles, you know. The, the Beatles were such um, an important part of... of um, Music, life. period, you know. And they're really a very small part in your life. I mean, a big part in who you are, but a small sure. part in the number of years sure. that you were a Beatle. Yeah. So uh, I, I guess I'd like to get a sense of what what it means in your life if you still feel like that that is so much a part of your existence or if that's something that you've really tried to move beyond and away from and... Well, I don't think you can move uh, away from it because, uh, you know, it was only eight years of my life, but it's the eight years that everybody really associates with. Um, it, you know, it's like, you know, it doesn't matter I've made hit records and, uh, you know, I had hit albums and I'm on tour and that. It, it always comes back to these eight years of being a Beatle. And, and I think I just have to resign myself to that, that that's, uh, that's what people want to know about. But, in, of course, in my life, I've moved on, you know. Uh, it's, uh, I've done other things. Thank you so much for talking with us. All right. Thank you, Terry. Ringo Starr, speaking to Terry Gross in 1995. Ringo turns 83 years old today. After a break, film critic Justin Chang reviews the summer's newest R-rated comedy, Joyride. This is Fresh Air. Support for NPR and the following message come from Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs, who believes that plants and gardening are for everyone. With over 25 years of developing, trialing, and testing some of the most recognized flowering shrubs and evergreens on the market, Proven Winners Color Choice makes it easy to transform dull yards into vibrant, colorful landscapes. Ready to spruce up your yard this spring? Proven Winners Color Choice created the Gardening Simplified Landscape Guide to help you get started with tried and true elements of good planting design. Identify the roles you want new plants to play in your outdoor space, like ground covers, climbers, or attracting pollinators. Then browse garden plans and see which layouts and plants can bring your vision to life. Proven Winners Color Choice shrubs are available in the distinctive white containers at garden centers nationwide. Learn more at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify, the global commerce platform that helps you sell and show up exactly the way you want to. Customize your online store to your style. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com NPR. The new film Joyride is an R-rated road trip comedy about four Asian Americans traveling together in China. It's the first movie directed by Adele Lim, a co-writer on Crazy Rich Asians, and the ensemble cast includes Stephanie Hsu, a recent supporting actress Oscar nominee for Everything Everywhere All at Once. It opens in theaters this week. Our film critic, Justin Chang, has this review. There's an early moment in Joyride when you'll know if you're on board with this exuberantly raunchy comedy or not. On a neighborhood playground, a white kid tells a young Chinese-American girl named Lolo 
if the place is off-limits to ching-chongs. Lolo then does something that maybe a lot of us who've been on the receiving end of racist bullying have fantasized about doing. She drops an F-bomb and punches him in the face. It's an extreme response, but also a hilarious and frankly cathartic one. A blissfully efficient counter to every stereotype of the shy, docile Asian kid. Lolo soon becomes best friends with Audrey, one of the only other Asian-American girls in their Washington State suburb. That aside, the two could hardly be more different. Where Lolo is unapologetically crude and outspoken, Audrey is quiet and eager to please. And while Lolo speaks Mandarin fluently and grew up steeped in Chinese culture, Audrey is more westernized, having been adopted as a baby in China and raised by white parents. Years later, they're still best friends and total opposites. Audrey, played by Ashley Park, is a lawyer on the fast track to making partner at her firm, while Lolo, played by Sherry Cola, is a broke artist who makes sexually explicit sculptures. The story gets going when Audrey is sent on a business trip to Beijing to woo a potential client. Lolo comes along for fun and to serve as Audrey's translator. Lolo also brings along her K-pop-obsessed cousin, nicknamed Deadeye, who's played by the non-binary actor Sabrina Wu. As they get off the plane, Audrey marvels at what it's like to be surrounded by Asians for a change. I don't think I've ever been around only Asian people. I mean, we look like everyone else for once. I think we blend right in. Yeah, but people here can tell Chinese Chinese from American Chinese. What do you mean? See? Okay. Hong Kong Chinese. Bluetooth. Shanghai Chinese. Bougie. Ooh. Taiwanese. Weird but cute. What kind of Chinese are they? What the f- is wrong with you? Are you trying to get canceled? Those are Koreans. Oh. That's howdy fun. It's a K-pop group. Yeah, they all have the same face. That's how you can tell. The script, written by Cherry Chiva Pravat Dumrong and Teresa Xiao, is heavy on contrivance. Thanks to Lolo's meddling, Audrey winds up putting her work on hold and trying to track down her birth mother. But the director Adele Lim keeps the twists and the laughs coming so swiftly that it's hard not to get swept up in the adventure. The comedy kicks up a notch once Audrey looks up her old college pal, Kat, who's now a successful actor on a Chinese soap opera. Kat is played by Stephanie Hsu, who, after her melancholy breakout performance in Everything Everywhere All at Once, gets to show off some dazzling comedic chops here. Like Lolo, with whom she initially butts heads, Kat has had a lot of sex, something she's trying to hide from her strictly Christian fiancé. But no one in Joyride holds onto their secrets or their inhibitions for very long. As they make their way through the scenic countryside, Audrey, Lolo, Cat, and Deadeye run afoul of a drug dealer, hook up with some hunky Chinese basketball players, and disguise themselves as a fledgling K-pop group for reasons too outlandish to get into here. In a way, Joyride, which counts Seth Rogen as one of its producers, marks the latest step in a logical progression for the mainstream Hollywood comedy. If Bridesmaids and Girls Trip set out to prove that women could be as gleefully gross as, say, the men in the Hangover movies, this one is clearly bent on doing the same for Asian-American women and non-binary characters. Like many of those earlier models, Joyride boasts mile-a-minute pop culture references, filthy one-liners, and a few priceless sight gags, including some strategic full-frontal nudity. Naturally, it also forces Audrey and Lolo to confront their differences in ways that put their friendship to the test. If it doesn't all work, the hit-to-miss ratio is still impressively high. Joyride may be reworking a formula, but it does so with disarming energy and verve, plus a level of savvy about Asian culture that we still rarely see in Hollywood movies. Director Lim can stage a gross-out moment or a frisky montage as well as anyone. But she also gives the comedy a subversive edge, whether she's pushing back on lazy assumptions about Asian masculinity or, in one queasily funny scene, making clear just how racist Asians can be toward other Asians. The actors are terrific. Deadeye is named Deadeye for their seeming lack of expression, but Sabrina Wu makes this character, in some ways, the emotional glue that holds the group together. 
you can hear Sherry Cola's past stand-up experience in just about every one of Lolo's foul-mouthed zingers. And Ashley Park gives the movie's trickiest performance as Audrey, an insecure overachiever who, as the movie progresses, learns a lot about herself. Maybe that's a cliché, too. But Joyride gives it just the punch it needs. Justin Chang is the film critic for the L.A. Times. He reviewed the new film, Joyride. On Monday's show, the glory days of the Negro Leagues. We talk with Sam Pollard, director of the new documentary, The League, about the dozens of teams with black owners and players who played a style of baseball that was fast, aggressive, and entertaining long before Jackie Robinson integrated Major League Baseball. I hope you can join us. For Terry Gross and Tanya Mosley, I'm David Biancula. Support for NPR and the following message come from PBS. PBS invites you on a trip to the future. A Brief History of the Future is a groundbreaking series filled with hope and possibility about where people are today and what could come next. From tech to tradition, from climate to culture, from science to spirituality. Join futurist Ari Wallach on a journey around the world as he meets the brilliant minds and brave pioneers remaking people's futures for generations to come. A Brief History of the Future. Stream now on PBS and the PBS app. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast, Choiceology. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, historians, authors, athletes, and more about why people do the things they do. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. When voters talk during an election season, we listen. We ask questions, we follow up, and we bring you along to hear what we learned. Get closer to the issues, the people, and your vote at the NPR Elections Hub. Visit npr.org slash elections.